company's culture strong enough, it will be able to withstand the physical separation and the separation in time. But the issue is how do you create a culture that's strong enough? Most companies don't have that. And then how do you ensure that it's sustained over time? Because if people are hybrid and they are dispersed, it's going to be absolutely critical that they have a strong enough culture and a shared set of values and mission to carry them through. Welcome to the Best Self-Management Podcast. I'm David Hassel. And I'm Shane Metcalf. Me and David have been working together along with our co-founder, Nazar, and all the amazing other people that are a part of 15.5 for the last seven years. And we are not the same people that we were seven years ago. One of the things we're a big stand for is like, how do we actually embrace the whole person and understand that can we support someone in thriving in their whole life? And if we do, then they're probably going to contribute more at work. Your mission is to attract the best talent, retain your high performers, and maximize everyone's potential. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Best Self-Management Podcast. We are really thrilled today to have Marissa King join me and David. Marissa King is a professor of organizational behavior at the Yale School of Management, where she developed and teaches a popular course entitled Managing Strategic Networks. Over the past 15 years, King has studied how people's social networks evolve, what they look like, and why that is significant. Her most recent line of research analyzes the individual and group-level behaviors that are necessary for large-scale organizational change. King's research has been featured in outlets such as the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, The Atlantic, and on NPR. Marissa's forthcoming book, which I think is actually out right now, Social Chemistry, Decoding the Patterns of Human Connection explores how individuals can build more meaningful and productive relationships, drawing on insights from neuroscience, psychology, and network analytics. You can follow her work at marissaking.com and discover your own network signature at assessyournetwork.com. And what's also really cool about Marissa is she is the first outside teacher that we brought in to teach a course on our own Best Self Academy, which you can find at bestselfacademy.com. Marissa, welcome to the show. It's a real pleasure to have you. It's great to be here with you, Shane and David. Yeah, so good. I wanted to start off, you know, your book, Social Chemistry, and also the course you teach at Yale, uh, is, is it Managing Strategic Networks? Yes. Yes. I'm curious with COVID, like how are you seeing kind of the shift in some of the underlying things in what you teach in terms of how people's relationships have been impacted or faring during the pandemic? Yeah, the pandemic's had, as you can imagine, extraordinary impact on people's relationships. And one of the things that we're seeing first and foremost is that networks actually tend to be shrinking. The size of people's networks is getting substantially smaller. And we've seen this in a variety of other crises, right? If you look at personal networks after Katrina, if you look at within companies after a strong price shock, you'll actually see people's networks shrink. The shrinkage we're observing is pretty large, um, almost 20% on average average. And that has some implications for companies if they're thinking about particularly the outer reaches of their networks. And one of the things I think that's important to keep in mind as we discuss this is it's actually a pretty adaptive strategy because in times of crisis, we need more emotional support. We need more cohesion. So people tend to turn inward to their closest colleagues and friends. And so it's adaptive in the short term, but I think we need to be careful in the long term about what the longer term consequences of that contraction are. Huh. Now, I know we're in the midst of this one, but historically, when the crisis tends to end and we get back into a, a space of more safety, do things naturally kind of evolve back to the same kinds of networks or do they evolve in different ways? 
They evolve in different ways. And one of the things that's interesting to me and I think rather extraordinary is actually how quickly our networks tend to churn. If you look at research and you ask people to think of their colleague that they're in the closest and most frequent contact with, and you get a list of those people, and this is under normal circumstances, and then you look two years later, less than half of those people will still be in their core colleagues. So even just under times of pure stability, we see extraordinary churn in our personal relationships. And so I think what is going to happen is that when you go back to work, right, on the Monday when this is all done and people, if they do go back into the office, they go back into the office, that who they've been talking to and who they're connected to is going to look entirely different than it was pre-pandemic. Right. And if they go back into an office too. (laughs) (laughs) Which is a whole other thing. So why should we care about networks, both as professionals and as just human beings? Like, why should we care about strategic networks? I appreciate that, Shane. Right? Um, if you think about, right, first off, like, what are your networks? When I'm talking about that, it's just the traces of your day-to-day interactions, who you are emailing with, who you bump into at the coffee shop, your close friends and family. And all of those traces create patterns. And what those patterns look like have a profound impact on your health and well-being, your likelihood of getting promoted, finding a job, how engaged you are with work, how likely you are to turn over. So where you sit in this web of interaction has a huge impact on a variety of outcomes. And what we know for all of these is different types of structures or patterns are impacted differently by all sorts of circumstances, but that in turn impacts a huge range of outcomes, both personal and professional. You know, I think of my own journey through life and the kind of serendipity that led me to meeting David and how he was dating somebody in my network and then they introduced us and next thing you know I'm co-founder of 15.5 and I was like whoa how did that happen and you know I think that's kind of part of the power of network is is we don't know what network can bring us yeah and I love that that story is about in the word serendipity it's so true and I think that's one of the things that is frequently misunderstood when people hear the word network they often think about networking like I'm going to try to meet the person who's going to push you forward on your career and as you address that Jane that's really really difficult right that's not simply how our social relationships work there's a lot of serendipity but the truth of the matter is there are also patterns behind that so what I try to do is to allow people to understand like what are some of these common and patterns and like what makes networks actually work. Because the idea, right, that I'm going to go out and meet the right person, it's just not simply how social dynamics work. But it's instead, it's like, how can I create the conditions that allow for this serendipity in which you and David come together through a friend of a friend? And that's almost always how it happens, which is kind of the magic behind the whole thing. Usually (laughs) I feel like those connections get made because someone has a certain idea about who you are, what your interests are, like you're positioned somehow in someone's mind. And then they're like, oh, well, you need to meet this person. Is that something that you focus on? And what are some of the other tenets of, you know, the actual practice of managing strategic networks that as someone in a network that you'd want to care for? Yeah, if we think about what are the things that impact what network signatures look like, or if we're trying to create them or engineer them, and what's really interesting about workplaces is you can do this in a way that you can't do out in the wild. So if you think about what are the things that tend to structure what someone's network actually looks like, first and foremost, it's your network is primarily shaped by where you spend your time, right? The realms in which you spend, where you exist, is going to have a huge impact on what your network looks like. And why that might seem obvious in retrospect, oftentimes when people are thinking about their network, they're thinking about 
who can I get to know? But a much better way of thinking about it is where should I be going? So space has a huge impact on who's interacting with whom, and there are different ways of thinking about designing space to facilitate that. The other piece is that as humans, we naturally tend to gravitate to other people who are, are like us, whether that's whether they look like us or have similar ideas. And that principle, this tendency of a friend of a friend, which is known in the literature as homophily, is another really defining characteristic. And why this is important is if you want, for instance, creativity or you want innovation, you have to break out of these tendencies and be much more reflective about who are you actually interacting with and who are you putting in touch with other people. So how you're creating these connections in a thoughtful way allows you to come overcome some of the tendencies that actually can be pretty inhibitive depending on what you're trying to do. Is that connected to the idea that we're the average of the five people we spend the most time with? You know, they're like, if we, if we want to be more creative, we need to hang out with more creative people. Am I hearing or am I kind of reaching for that connection? <laughs> yeah, well, you're not. You're thinking of it. It's interesting that you say that. And I think you're thinking of it in a different way, right? So you can think about these processes. Like if we're thinking about creativity, what you just described, Shane, is this tendency to all converge on the average, right? So if we're all talking in an echo chamber, all the time, right? We're going to converge on similar ideas, which is why you need to continually bring new people into that circle. Another way of also thinking about it is if you create that group of five people and you already have similar backgrounds, you all went, you know, to Stanford, MIT, wherever you went, you're all the same demographic group. You all have kids. You're at a similar life stage. You're already pretty similar and you probably don't have that very, very different ideas to begin with. So then you keep you in the same room for a long time, right? And the level of creativity just drops and drops. So there's some part of it, like who is in that group of five people? And then there's a second piece of that of what happens over time if you continually interact in the same small social circle. Which I think is you just laid out the business case for why diversity in companies is so important. Business case for diversity is in part just related to innovation and creativity, as you mentioned. I think that's one of the stronger pieces of it. And there's some of that, right, that's related to demographic diversity. But one of the things that has been done by scholars who are at my NIT at this time tried to understand and disentangle was how much of it is actually just diversity and background versus how much of it is the networks that they bring into those interactions. And so what they found is it's actually the networks that they're bringing in and the ideas that are captured by that, not simply the demographic diversity that is being captured. That makes a lot of sense. That's that's really interesting. We have a lot of HR leaders who who listen to this podcast and you know they're probably thinking about like, well, this is all interesting, but how can I actually leverage some of these ideas to create better outcomes in my business so that you know, I would I would imagine that stronger networks might lead to better retention. For example, I think a, a stronger you know more networks throughout the organization, if it's organized in a certain way, might lead to more innovation. So, what are some of the things that you've seen in terms of like organizations adopting these principles that have led to better outcomes? That's spot on, David. And what I try to highlight, or what I think is first and foremost, is for HR leaders thinking about this. HR leaders spend an extraordinary amount of time thinking about human capital. Who are you going to hire? What skill sets do they have? But very little or significantly less attention is put on focusing on like, what is the social capital that your employees are bringing to the table? Mm. And every single person in your organization, whether at the top or they're a new employee being brought in, everyone has an existing network. And those networks have very different signatures. So in social chemistry, I highlight three different key signatures 
expenditures. And we know from decades of research that most people's networks can be characterized as one of these three types. And they all have very different benefits. So for instance, if you need more innovation, you need to figure out who in your organization is a broker, who's straddling different social worlds. But if you need to focus on retention, right, there's a different network signature, which I refer to as a convener, in which the team is really tightly interconnected and frequently working together. That signature is associated with trust and buy-in, and that's going to help with retention. So both from the individual level of understanding, like, what is the social capital that already exists within your company? And then how can you harness it to make the most of the social capital that your employees have? That's great. What's the third one? You mentioned the broker and the convener. And the third one is an expansionist. And an expansionist has an extraordinarily large network. This is what we think of as sort of the quintessential networker. And they're really useful if you're trying to have influence or increase visibility. Got it. Do you find people straddle them? Can they be both a broker and an expansionist? Or how do you see that? Yeah, so oftentimes you'll see combinations of a broker being an, and an expansionist or a convener or and an expansionist, but it's extraordinarily rare that someone's both a broker and a convener, but it's extraordinarily useful and it's arguably the best combination that you can have, particularly at later stages in your career. So at different moments in people's career, these different types of signatures are more or less useful. Kind of makes me think like when we start dating somebody, we're not just dating the person, we're actually dating their entire network as well. You know, and just that like we're not the individuals that we think we are. We really do. We hire somebody and we hire them, but also the entire network that they're connected to. And all of a sudden, future referrals for good or bad are going to come through that network, the different ideas. So there's tremendous, I think you've made a really good case about there's emotional, financial, mental benefits to thriving networks. How can we as people leaders help our people engineer in a time of COVID more beneficial strategic networks? I'll tackle it first, right? Before we get to in the time of COVID, because I think COVID, when we can talk about what complexities COVID create, I think the first thing to realize is networks don't just come out of nowhere. Oftentimes people think that their networks are, are predetermined by their personality, but there are lots of other types of factors that have a huge impact on what our networks look like. And one of them, for instance, is just career history. So if you're trying to create innovation, what you're really trying to do is to create these serendipitous interactions that you were talking about in the beginning of the show, Shane. So you can think about if you're trying to do that, you need to do it in a way that's thoughtful. So for instance, unusual career paths we know tend to allow people to have these more brokerage type networks. If you're in a moment where people are really struggling with a sense of belonging, or a lack of social isolation or just mental exhaustion as many people are during COVID, you need to think about how can you actually create interactions that have more trust, that have more depth to them. And so if that's the goal, particularly during COVID, what you actually need to be suggesting to employees is not, I don't know, coffee roulette, which would help with innovation. Instead of that, you want to be thinking about, all right, if I need more trust, I need more cohesion, then fostering deeper within team interactions by allowing people to engage in self-disclosure exercises, by allowing time for just take 30 minutes out to connect with your closest team member, but not to talk about work, to just check in. So all of these practices actually generate very different types of social structures. Yeah, it almost makes me want to ask, like, who's... Who's one of your work best friends that you haven't caught up with in a while? 
And can you schedule in the next week or two, 30 minutes for that? And it sounds like such a like trivial thing, but we know from research by Tom Rath, for instance, that having a best friend at work increases employee engagement by sevenfold. So there are huge benefits to having really close friendships at work. And what is interesting, I think that people often disregard is that it's not that you need to be friends with everybody at work, right? That's not the idea, but you actually just need one or two people that you can really trust and rely on and open up to. And that's where all of these benefits are many, many of the benefits around friendships at work come from is actually from our closest friends, not being friends with everybody. I want to talk directly to you listening in for just a moment. If you're enjoying these interviews, the concepts we discuss, and you're committed to equipping your managers to develop highly engaged and high-performing teams, there's some additional resources that we know can help. Access the forever free best self management certification at 155.com forward slash academy for core management skills that unfortunately are not taught in business school. Visit 155.com forward slash services to sign up for our manager accelerator program to reorient your managers around the essential skills needed to conduct effective one-on-ones, offer meaningful feedback, and coach their teams to greatness. If you want exceptional software that integrates beautifully with our education and training, visit 155.com today. So let's dig in on this a little bit because I think friendship at work is such a fascinating topic. And what are the conditions that allow somebody to develop authentic friendships at work? Like what can we engineer a culture that puts in the right ingredients that that is more likely to happen than not? I mean, I think it's really, really tough actually to think about engineering friendships at work. And one of the reasons why maintaining friendships at work is really difficult despite the benefits is that there's an inherently a tension between these feelings of friendship or communality and instrumentality. And so if you take, there have been beautiful experiments, right? That show people routinely will say that I get the most satisfaction in my life out of connecting with other people. But if you prompt them in a psychological experiment with just the mention of money, their desire to interact with other people plummets, right? So if you think about at work, right, you're managing these tensions where your relationships are actually pretty sacred. And the idea of money is contaminating. So that instrumentality and relationships and friendship is actually a a pretty difficult mix. And so one of the things that I think can be really helpful is trying to figure out like, what are the boundaries and the parameters of those relationships? Instead of thinking about as friendships at work, I like to think about work friends. And you can get many of the benefits that you need from having a work friend. Like you don't need to take them home with you. You can take them home with you if you want. Um, But thinking about- Just don't tell HR. Right, exactly. Um, But it's really about the depth of interaction, right? It's not about how much time do you spend crossing these boundaries. And in many ways, keeping those boundaries intact, but having a deeper interaction is where most of the benefits come from. Mm. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting as I think I talk to a lot of HR leaders and a lot of CEOs and the prevailing narrative that I hear, even though there's a lot of uncertainty about what does life look like on the other end of the pandemic, is that COVID has kind of broken the stigma around, you know, for for people who believe that remote work doesn't work. And now it's like it works, but it may not still be ideal, certainly not for networks and serendipitous social interactions and all those things. There's a real deficit, but there's also a lot of upsides. Uh, You know, I'm in Sedona, Arizona today. 
Shane's in uh, Western Colorado, as we mentioned when we first got on the call uh, before we started recording. And, uh, you know, there's some benefits to that, but we miss out on, you know, the serendipitous connection. So have you put some thought into, you know, how do these principles work in a more distributed remote world? And is it just an unattainable problem or there we just have to be more conscious? We certainly have to be more conscious. And I think the biggest challenge is what it's going to look like and being conscious about how to design it. What we know from a wide variety of work is actually the most difficult circumstance is when some people are in the office and some people are not in the office. And thinking about like, what is the pandemic going to look like going forward? That to me has me most worried because what we know is as long as people are in the office at least half the time, their relationships don't suffer. So you could have some hybrid model, right? And I think that a lot of companies are going to go this direction. But the problem is when there becomes a stratification about who's in and who's out and that people aren't working at the same time. You can overcome some of the geographic problems through temporal connection, right? Like by having a sense that, okay, we're all together at this time and there's a continuity from a time perspective, you can get over some of the geography. But if everyone is kind of just doing their own thing and there's no structure to it and no one ever comes together face-to-face, there are going to be extraordinary problems. And the problems are exactly the ones that you talked about. The problems are innovation. And the second problem is that most problems get discovered serendipitously through one-on-one conversations. It's not like, let's sit down at a meeting and then it's like, oh, that's the problem, right? That the problems are discovered. They don't usually happen in meetings. And so there is a very high likelihood, right? That innovation will decrease and those big problems are going to go unnoticed for far longer than they would have otherwise if we can't figure out a way to do this well. And so I think the options of everybody remote is actually a far better solution than some sort of hybrid model. But for most organizations, that's not tenable because of the type of work that they're doing. They need some people on the ground. I mean, what's interesting in you speaking of this, I'm like, oh yeah, we kind of set ourselves up with all of the handicaps, which was uh, we were... We're in, I think, uh, nine different countries. So pretty broad range of time zones. We had three main offices where we had, what, about a half the company were in the office and the rest were distributed and remote. And so right there, it was kind of a recipe for, you know, things to not go so well. And yet we've built an award-winning culture. You know, we're ranked number three on Glassdoor, best places to work for companies under 1,000 employees. Uh, we get people regularly raving about how the companies changed their life and where they do have best friends at work. And so I think that not that we have all the answers on how to do this, but that you can do it. But what really occurs to me is that we put a lot of emphasis on that synchronization of coming together for everybody together live on a twice a week basis, actually. And then once a year, we were getting together in person and having these incredible peak experiences and creating just deeply like hot wiring the relationships of vulnerability and trust and connection once a year uh, to kind of fill the gas tank for the rest of the year. Yeah, and you just nailed it on every single dimension. First, right, the temporal synchronization of ensuring that there is time for everyone to get together. Temporal synchronization is an awesome word, well, by the way. It's, I could probably 
sense all together for at least some of the time, even in spanning time zones. Um, and I really appreciated also what you were talking about around like, you don't need to get everybody together all the time, right? And oftentimes actually holiday office parties are disastrous for company culture and creating cohesion. But having what you said, these shared peak experiences where you get together and hotwire relationships, that you're doing something with a shared mission or a shared purpose really can invigorate relationships in a way that will carry you for far longer than you would have imagined. And then the final piece, Jane, if a company's culture is strong enough, it will be able to withstand the physical separation and the separation in time. But the issue is how do you create a culture that's strong enough? Most companies don't have that. And then how do you ensure that it's sustained over time? Because if people are hybrid and they are dispersed, it's going to be absolutely critical that they have a strong enough culture and a shared set of values and mission to carry them through. Okay, so what are you doing to maintain your own personal network in the pandemic? You know, like I, I know like, my network has shrunk a lot, but you know, there's a smaller group that I have like on Marco Polo, for instance, and that I'm just like having all these ongoing, hilarious video asynchronous chats with and feel probably more connected to them than I did pre-pandemic. And yet the hundreds of people that I would have loose interactions with are, you know, I'm like, oh yeah, those occasionally go on Facebook and I'm like, oh, I remember who this person is. So what are you doing to maintain your own network? I think the biggest thing is just to triage and be realistic. And what I've seen in my own research is the people who are faring best now have two to five very close contacts. And for the short term, focusing inward on building and strengthening your existing relationships, building stronger trust around a key core is actually quite beneficial. And particularly from an emotional standpoint. And having a large network is actually not worth that much. Like so much emphasis is put on like meeting new people, growing your network, but every outcome that most people care about, whether it's their health and their well-being or professional success, it's not the size of their network that matters. So in the short term, it kind of really doesn't matter if the person on Facebook I ha- like has really totally fallen off my radar, as long as I'm maintaining the interconnections that are really key. And there's actually been research that's shown that going kind of really deep in your network and then maybe six or eight or 10 months later, stepping out and focusing on those outer reaches is one of the best ways of managing these tensions because you can't do both all the time. We all have a fixed amount of time. During COVID, people usually actually have less time. But in some ways, this may actually be beneficial if people were really going deep and then are conscious that later they need to make up for that once it becomes easier to do when we're under less pressure. That makes sense. You know, when you go out into the outer reaches and you have some, you know, kind of loose ties, I love the phrase that you used uh, where you said hot wiring relationships. And um, you you had also mentioned a practice earlier about disclosure practices, I think is, is one of those ways. Shane's often talked about how, you know, people bond through a combination of challenge and novelty. I'm curious for you, what are some of the principles that you see inside of like, how do you fast track and hotwire a relationship? It doesn't even have to be a relationship, but the quality of our interactions are really determined in the moment. It's so extraordinarily rare for us to truly be present with another person. And so if you're thinking about having a conversation with someone that you don't know well, how to hotwire that relationship or how to really accelerate that. Part of it's through self-disclosure, so these reciprocal interactions, but part of it is actually just trying to be as present as possible. It's extraordinarily rare 
for someone to be listened to and just given the space to be and allowing that quality to infuse your interactions really can allow you a strength of connection that otherwise is impossible. I often will do exercises in courses and with executives on this and just simply like have a conversation with someone, but ask, just ask them, what's it like to be you today? And give them three minutes to talk uninterrupted. And I've routinely seen both people start to cry during this because it's so, so rare for us to truly be heard. And it's amazing. Like it actually requires no action except for keeping your mouth shut. And all of a sudden you have social connection. Yeah, I've heard uh, listening described as like the greatest yin superpower on the planet. You know, it's just as a purely receptive, non-efforting power that we all have that is so underutilized. In part, right, it's, we're just too distracted, right? There's a bazillion things going on. And so because it's so rare, it's so valuable, um, but it's surprisingly hard to do. Okay, so this is actually something I've been thinking about a lot is in the age of Zoom, it's easier than ever to have a really low quality of listening. And it's actually, you know, for anybody that's watching this, I'm actually, I've started to try to set up my camera so that you can see my hands so that I have an inherent, like a built-in accountability structure so that I can't be looking at my phone. If I'm looking at my phone, you actually see that I'm looking at my phone or that I'm typing on my computer. How do we be more present in the digital relationships? I think it's time to turn off the camera. And I mean that with all sincerity. There's a lot of research that's, you know, I mean, it depends on what you're trying to do, right? If you need to share a screen, you need to share a screen. But work by my colleague, Michael Krauss and others has shown actually that voice conveys most of the information that we need. And if you're trying to get empathy and connection, that voice does a far better job. And the problem with Zoom, any type of visual interaction while you're trying to also listen is there's just a mazillion distractions. And it's sucks attention. So your cognitive load is just higher. So if you can, right, you definitely need to put away the phone chain. um, But if you can, there's a huge value actually to having less information coming at you because it allows you to focus actually on the conversation itself rather than all the other things going on in the environment. It's great. I've been really advocating walking meetings. You know, it's like turn off the camera and get up and actually make a phone call and, you know, go old school and do a regular cell call. Because when I do that, I'm, I'm, I'm not looking at things. I'm, I'm engaged, I'm walking, and I do feel a lot more present. There's extraordinary benefits also to just being outside. So as, as silly as and small as it seems, like one walking meeting on the phone a day has changed my life during this. I, I try to move as many meetings into that form, format as I can. Um, and if you're in right, Arizona or Colorado, like it's a beautiful place to be and time to be outside. So I think there's a lot to be said, even just for switching things up, aside from the benefits of different modes of communication, just switching things up and getting in a different environment inspires lots of creativity. So there's a benefit in that of itself. Well, and it's so interesting, right? That it's actually presence that is what builds real relationship. Of course, there's other ingredients like curiosity that are going to help, but simply being present is the foundation of good relationship. Yeah, I think it starts as the catalyst to trust. And these other parts about self-disclosure are also important because right, you need to be together, but you need to also be able to get deeper in your relationship. And those pieces, I think, are why it's 
when those pieces are missing, it explains why it's possible to sit next to work, someone at work, right, for two years and actually feel like you don't know them at all. It's a combination of that you're side by side, but you're not actually together. And that all the information that you're exchanging actually has no depth to it. So you haven't actually gotten to know each other in a meaningful way. By being present in someone, actually in a structured two-hour engagement where you're actually just trying to deepen that relationship, you can accelerate the relationship process and feel like you're leaving that and it's you know them better than someone that you sat next to for two years. Absolutely. I mean, there was a period in my life back in uh, 2009-2010, I lived in a big house in San Francisco with a group of people. I was meditating a lot of the time, so I was really practicing presence. And uh, I, uh, I would invite people that were interesting that I wanted to get to know over for a 20 or 30 minute tea. And we'd look out over the, the bay in San Francisco. And there are some people that I literally only had an hour conversation with, and it was not about work or trying to quote network. It was really just being present and curious. And they're still like really deep relationships, even though some of these people I haven't actually interacted with much since from that one or two hour conversation. It's it's remarkable. Yeah, and I love the piece that you brought in talking about curiosity. And this came up before, like I think you were talking about how Shane calls it novelty. I think that that curiosity allows you to find uncommon commonality. So most of the time actually in conversation, whether it's work conversation or in personal conversation, you spend talking about what everyone already has in common, but there's no discovery there. There's no surprise, which is actually what creates like joy and connection. So allowing the conversation to proceed with curiosity where you're not, most people in conversation search for similarity because it's comfortable, but actually striving with curiosity allows you to mutually discover new things, which can really support a relationship development in a way that is actually pretty uncommon in our day-to-day lives. So, so how do you do this at an organizational level? You know, because I've even thought in the past that culture is really just a synonym for connection. You know, that like the quality of connection is the quality of culture inside of a company. And so how do you do this at an organizational level? You have to do it in a very structured way. So I think what oftentimes happens is people think, right? Like if I bring people together, we're going to create connection, but that's not true. And there's been research, there's a great party, there's a great party, um, there's a great paper called Getting Closer at the Company Party. So, so parties are the way? Yeah. <laughs> parties are not the way is where I'm going with this. And this is why. If you imagine that you just have a part party and you have no structure to it, what happens is that if, and this is particularly true for people who are in the numerical minority, and that could be with respect to gender, with respect to race, with respect to any number of things, but people who don't feel that already a sense of belonging. So in those types of interactions, everyone's equally likely to show up. But the people at the end of those unstructured interactions who are likely to report that they felt an increased sense of belonging or an increased sense of connection differ substantially by whether or not they felt like they could, that they were already a part of, that they could express parts of themselves. And so what needs to happen rather right, than saying like, just show up and it'll work out is to create situations that allow people to, in a way that feels comfortable to them, to disclose parts of themselves that they're willing to share. And I think it's important to do this in a way that's reciprocal, we know, so it gets deeper and deeper and it's shared. And one of the 
like cautionary tales. It's like, I wanted to be clear, like the idea that, right, that you should just share everything is not the way to go. But instead it's giving people the power and control over what parts of themselves that they want others to see. And allowing everyone to do that allows a common basis and a shared sense of trust. Another way of doing this, right, is also just simply through the shared experiences you're talking about. So you can create environments that are really structured that feel safe for people to self-disclose and get closer to one another. Or you can do this by creating a common identity through these shared experiences and a common sense of purpose. Yeah, I think it was actually my right, a deep sense of not belonging and be, growing up as a numerical minority, which I love that phrase, by the way, and just a really deep sense of uh, social awkwardness that led me to kind of look for a structure of how to create that structure for self-revealing in my networks that was the first time I really started to feel safe in social situations. And so it's just, a, it's, it's fascinating to hear the description of how important that structure is. It just feels really validating of what I've found to be true for myself. Yeah, I appreciate that word safe. Yeah, I mean, psychological safety is such a is such a big thing. I mean, we all have you know different social anxieties and and all those things. I mean, we we have a practice. It's interesting because what you shared is both validating and also something t- for us to look at internally. We have a practice called Question Friday, where Friday mornings at nine a.m. Pacific, everybody joins a, a a Zoom call and one person gets to ask a question once a week for a month, and it's an invitation to reveal something personal. And we go into breakout groups and we all get to share. But it's also self-selecting on who chooses to show up or not every Friday. And I would imagine that you know some people may not value it, others might not feel safe. Um, but for the ones who do, it's really powerful. I love that. Question Friday. I, I want to ask what the question this past Friday was. Um, but I, And I think there are a couple of things, right, from an organizational standpoint. One, I think is recognizing that people actually have very different preferences going in. So if if people don't want to show up on Question Friday, to making people feel like that's okay too is really important. And I, especially right now during COVID, those practices, and so it, what you just described is one of the best practices, like ensure right, that there's five to 10 minutes at the beginning of every meeting that people, everybody is allowed to speak up and check in with how they're doing. And that's a best practice normally. But during COVID, it can be really hard, right? Because you're in people's personal space right now. And also people are really struggling. So if you ask a question, whatever that question is, people need to be very mindful about what they're asking people to reveal. Because seemingly benign questions right now can be really, really difficult because you don't know what's going on in people's personal lives. Um, They may have a sick family member. So if you're going to ask, whatever that question is, it needs to be carefully thought about and there needs to be the space to hold the answer, whatever it is. Um, Otherwise, it can actually backfire, it seems like, particularly in these times. So what do you want to leave us with in terms of, you know, like, how should we be thinking differently about our network's about the role of our networks and also the role of our networks in the professional world. Our relationships are really our greatest assets. That's true for individuals and it's true for companies. And what I would want to leave you with is that understanding what form your relationships take, what they look like, what the structure that is, both at a level as an individual, what your own networks look like, but also what the networks of your team members or employees look like has an extraordinary impact on both 
where you are right now, but also where you're likely to go. So being much more conscious about the patterns that already exist and how you can improve upon them by creating more beneficial connections is not only going to benefit you, but it's also going to have extraordinary spillover effects to everyone within the organization. And so you actually have it as network assessment tool. Can you speak just a little bit of, of that and where we can find it? Sure. If you go to assessyournetwork.com, you can take the free assessment. It'll give you a sense of what your own network looks like. There are also quick ways of figuring this out. If you don't have the time to do it, it's only a couple minutes, but there, it's extraordinarily valuable. And I think from a team perspective, it can also allow you to start to realize what are some untapped potential or untapped strength that exists within your team. That's great. I also want to plug your course on the on 15.5's Best Self Academy. So if you go to 15.5.com slash academy, Marissa's got a really great nine-lesson free course on uh, building networks. And I think you're actually going to be the first outside teacher in our premium academy. Uh, Jeff Smith, who runs the academy, told me to say hi. And uh, he's very excited to have you uh, featured in, inside the premium academy soon. It's fantastic to be a part of the community. Anywhere else that people can follow your work? Obviously, buy her book. <laughs> Thank you, Shane. Uh, and you can connect with me through my website at marissaking.com. And I'd love to stay in touch and keep connecting. Thanks so much, Marissa. Thank you, guys. Thank you to our producer, Counterweight Creative, to our executive producer, David Misney, and guest coordinators, Sydney Lee and Suzanne Haight. One of the easiest things you can do to help us spread the message of being and becoming your best self at work is to write a review on Apple Podcasts or just share this episode's link on your favorite social media channel. If you have any questions or comments, please email me and Shane at podcast at 15.5.com. We'd love to hear from you. And finally, thank you. Thank you.